everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cyber Tangent. I'm your host, Ryan Williams, and today we're joined by Daryl Jones, who's actually a returning guest to our podcast. Daryl is currently the CISO for Aries Management and brings to the table years of experience across industries managing risk and security initiatives. So, Daryl, welcome back, and thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So today's topic, what we want to focus on is what it means to be a pre versus a post-breach CISO, Chief Information Security Officer. Can you just start us mm-hmm. off by explaining a bit of what each of those mean, and then we can dive in a bit deeper as we go? Certainly. It really boils down to experience. And the biggest event in a CISO's job, or what point in their career that they're at, is a big breach. And some of those are published, and most of them aren't. But you learn lessons in that event that change how you go. It changes your entire strategy of how you build a program, what the focuses of the program are, and you start picking up on the the people based on what they say, and you'll find out based on what they focus on and what they've been through, you'll hear it in their voice, you'll hear it in their choice of words. So this is something, this is not my term. I don't even know who coined it, but it's... The pre and post breach CISO are very different people. And this is a great topic to bring up nowadays, especially with the growing deployment of CISOs and companies today. And every company's getting one or building one or growing them. <laughs> and it really says a lot about what the program is in that organization based on the person's experience when they hire them and put them in the role. Yeah. I think there's a stat out there right now that says there's about 200 breaches happening a day, which if you think about that, that's enormous. But I also don't think that's even the the most it's ever going to be because I think it, breaches just continue to happen and there's almost no, no way of stopping it. It's just a matter of managing it the best we can. Would you say that most people are already a post-breach CISO, but it really the definition boils down to if they know it or not? Well, there, that's a great question. I never thought of it from that perspective. When you gave that stat, my first impression was, I bet you that's really, really low. <laughs> it's like, which is even terrifying, right? So the answer, then if we're going to go on that route, you're right. Most people are probably post-breach CISOs. They don't know it yet. But I guess the term really is anchored in knowing that you went through a breach, not that you are, you're, it's happening to you now. You know, there's really no ignorance in that, in that title, I suppose. Yeah. And now, I guess we'll get it personal just a little bit so the our listeners and stuff understand kind of where you're coming from all this. You've got, what is it, 20-something years of experience now in the security or IT-related fields. Would you consider yourself to be a post-breach CISO because you've gone through and experienced that kind of stuff? And how have you, yes. <laughs> how have you dealt with that? Or what are some differences that you've learned that maybe a pre-breach CISO hasn't gone through yet or doesn't acknowledge yet? Sure. And... I liked your choice of word and knowledge. So to use the language that me and my, my counterparts use, pre-breach CISO self-identify. And it's not a dig, it's just a fact, right? And what do I mean by that? A pre-breach CISO is going to have assessments and they're going to have reporting to the board and all of these things, and they're going to be technology-based. So when they start talking about technology, right? We're using this technology. We're using this technology. Those are all tips or what tells for a pre-breach CISO. Post-breach CISO, their language is in risk and business involvement, business leadership involvement, business leadership education, 
business and then third-party engagements with subject matter experts to be very specific around when all hell breaks loose, you know exactly who to call, when to call, why to call, and you have process. So and you and I have heard this a thousand times. Our problems in IT and cyber have three components, people, process, and technology. Pre-breach CISOs focus on technology. Post-breach CISOs, we focus on people and process, and the technology will take care of itself. That, I think that's the best way that I can describe that. Wow. I actually, I actually really like that because the technology piece feels like the easiest piece out of all three of them. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but would you agree with that? In terms no, you're of, right. Yeah. 100%. It's easy. I can buy an EDR. I can buy an ISP. Yeah. I can buy all of that. But sitting down and getting business sign-off on data classification to find out what the crown jewels of the company are, that's hard. But let's pull on that a little bit because that's a passion area of mine as well and around the risk quantification space or, or really just trying to figure out mm-hmm. what's the business impact of cybersecurity. And so we can be predictive and proactive for mm-hmm. before a breach happens. But even if one does, what kind of magnitude are we even thinking about and what can we go do about it to not be the next Equifax or whatever kind of big headline might be out there, right? I think that's the probably the biggest sure. thing you get from your board or other C-suite just trying to manage the headlines, right? Well, reputational risk is huge, but reputational risk is a symptom of a different risk, right? So in this case, so I'm going to go back to the example I just gave, which is data handling, right? Data classification, data handling. This is hard and it takes years and a pre-breach CISO won't focus on it or they will, but it's going to be, okay, we're going to look for PII and we're going to look for PCI data or HIPAA or whatever, stuff that's easily identified through technology. If you get Vontu or you get Digital Guardian or whoever, for a DLP standpoint, give it rights to scan everything. You'll find all the PII in the company and you'll find where it's kept and all of that stuff. And that's handy. It's only handy. What's important though is sitting down with human resources and say, where do you keep all of the employee data? Is it on laptops? Is it on a file share? Is it, is it an application? And then doing an assessment of the security around that, that's risk. That's risk management. Like even sitting down with something as simple, and I shouldn't use the word simple, that's the wrong word, a straightforward business vertical like human resources, 80% of that conversation around data classification is the training of HR to determine what they figure out what the crown jewels of HR are. Because the first response is, and it's the easiest run, well, everything we do is important. Okay, great. If everything is important, we're going to treat it like highly confidential data, which means we're going to strip it off the endpoints, we're going to strip it out of the network drives, and we're going to put it in these applications, and you'll have to check it out, and it'll blow up after a period of time. And then they go, wait, 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 we can't run a business like that. that <laughs> so you can't treat everything like Fort Knox, because everything isn't Fort Knox. And there's a huge cost associated in business operation impact if you do. So that, that's what a post-breach CISO does. They sit down, and in fact, and I'm hand on heart, hand in air, that's what I'm doing is sitting down with the business units and saying, what is important? Is it everything? Probably not. Is it just this? And is it just this for a particular period of time? If that's true and we can agree on that, then I will apply proper security monitoring and alerting to just this in this period of time so that if we have a breach, we know this is safe. That's hard. And it takes time and it takes a breach. And it takes practice to be really good at that. 
Yeah, totally. Let me. So obviously, the name of our our podcast is Cyber Tangent. So if we take this time now, was that too tangenty? No, let's go on. I want to. I want to take that and go on a bit of a tangent here as well, right? So you described a little bit about what you're doing, hand over heart, and I know however much detail mm-hmm. you want to give or not give about areas management, that's totally fine. How would right. you run your risk program? And what I mean by that is, whose responsibility is it to instill? A lot of what you just mentioned is a, a culture change, but it also is, uh-huh. do you have to wait for a breach to happen? And then the CISO says, hey, I told you so. Now you're going to listen to me? Or how do we not have that be the case? You know what I'm saying? Like whose responsibility can it be to, well, to be more proactive about it, all of it? Well, I will tell you this from watching it happen. The CISO that says, I told you so, they very rarely get to finish that sentence before they're fired. <laughs> It's very true. What, what is it? The average lifespan is what, 15 to 24 months right now for a CISO, something like that? Yeah, it's like 24 months, exactly. And so the record, I've been through breaches and I stayed employed. So, <laughs> yay, I'm a statistic. So, <laughs> so to that point, and what's important is you've got to have the business take responsibility for their own risk. That is another pre-breach CISO failure. So you asked, how do you sit down with the business and how do you get them to do that? First thing that was done here, the first thing I did in my previous lives, and whenever I say the wrong thing to the right person at the right time and I get asked to leave the building, I'll do in my next job is I set up an executive steering committee. Executive, not IT. IT sits on it. But the principal members of the the committee are risk, compliance, legal, HR, operations, then IT. Notice IT is in the what the sixth position. They didn't make top five. A post or pre-breach CISO, they'll have IT in the top five. Yeah, guarantee it. Dollar to a donut. But you notice IT is like technology. Unfortunately, if you notice everything else I focused on there were people in process. Then. You've got to run a risk discovery program, and we've done it, and I did it in my previous lives. This comes in the form of questionnaires or interviews or bounties or whatever you want to do it, but you've got to build a risk register. This is everything we know about that's a problem right now. So, And then we're going to sit down, and we're going to measure it. If you have an enterprise risk team with an enterprise risk methodology, you apply that methodology to each one of those risks. You prioritize what those risks are based on what you just learned. You go back to the committee and you say, these are our risks. Notice I didn't say my risk. I didn't say cybersecurity risk. I said our risks. I can give you guidance on what I think we should do. I can even be made accountable for working a plan, but I can never be held responsible for organizational risks. That's the organization. That is a sign of a post-breach CISO because they will focus on risk and they are going to focus on response, which are people and process. Incident response and the lack of focus on incident response from having a plan, more importantly, having a process and exercising said process against what you found was the biggest risk and the biggest value assets in the company that is a pre that's going to get you fired 100% of the time and that is hard because it's not technology based it's people and process based and pre breach CISOs don't do that they do after a breach because whenever it blows up and it will 
and they suddenly don't have a plan, they don't have an agreed-to process, they don't have agreed-to subject matter expert vendors that are going to help you through this on standby or retainer, whichever term you want to use, you don't have the technical capabilities at a forensic level to be able to do the analysis of what a breach looked like, that gets you fired, number one. And all of that, that's what a pre-breach CISO learns in the breach. When they get fired, they take it to the next job, and then suddenly it's instant response, it's people and process, and conversations around Intune or AirWatch or Mobile Iron, it doesn't matter. Those, that's all tech. Tech will take care of itself. You use those words, and you took the words right out of my mouth. Focus on people and process. Yeah. I and mean, risk. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I mean, you got to present it in business terms, and you got to present it in risk, not just sort of the what's coming through your technical scans and your log files, right? That doesn't make any sense. But so let me ask you there's still, I guess, breaches that happen out there where, for right or for wrong, Someone has to take a fault. You're going to get breached. And you've described some very good processes for how a CISO can handle situations and say, hey, look, we may have had a breach, but look how I can do the cyber forensics. Look at how I have all the processes and policies backed up. The business owned this risk. I'm just the one that was trying to implement it. And we did what we agreed to do. And therefore, I shouldn't lose my job. But how do, how do you feel about even some post-breach CISOs who, who have a good process in place still being let go or fired because a breach happens and therefore why the, the average tenure is still 24 months or less. I'm sorry. We signed up for that when we took the job. I know this. So I feel that I know how to run a program and it gets assessed. And I don't want to sound, I don't want to speak with any level of hubris, but I think I know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> if we have a big enough breach, I'm fired. I know this. If it's big enough, my CIO will get fired. If it's big enough, our COO will get fired. If you have a Sony-level breach, there will be members of the board that get fired because at some point, at some level, somebody's going to have to make the following decision. I have to look like I'm doing something to affect this so I can maintain my employment. I get it. I know it. I know I'm the first, the first man through the door is always the one who gets shot. I get it. I know that's my job. But if it's big enough, so do the guys behind me. <laughs> so it's a nature of the business. And if it's big enough, then there's nothing I can do. I get it. But if you're able to stand back and say, we did everything that's reasonable, I could walk into my next job with my head up high. Yeah, I guess if I pull on that a little bit too, is, is the question more, how can you confidently go tell your board or, or C-suite that you did everything that was reasonable? How, how <laughs> Right? Yeah. Isn't that maybe the bigger question to ask is how do you have more confidence rather than just saying, look, guys, I've been doing this for 20-something years. I've been through it, so trust me, this is what it is, and no, oh. no more questions asked. That's not going to work, right? I think you and I both know that. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, how so do now I understand the nature of your question. Yeah. So here's – so I'm going to talk about Daryl Jones versus Verizon incident response, retainerships, right? I know – what Verizon is going to ask of us as far as an instant response program for readiness if we have a breach. I understand that. I've been working with Verizon for a long time. And no, this is not a plug for Verizon. I'm sure there are other companies out there that do just as good a job as Verizon. <laughs> but I know Verizon. You've got to have that external third-party assessment practice in place. And I'm not here to – there's a place 
for the big three. There will always be a place for the big three. They're great at some of this stuff. But you need to have subject matter experts that are recognized in the industry, such as, in a real-life example, is a Perkins and Cooey or a Morrison and Forrester, two world-class law firms focusing on privacy and incident response. You need to have them come in and say, this is where you are in your program, your maturity level. These are the things that we see highly mature programs do. This is what you're not doing in comparison to them. And these are the things you need to work on, even if you know that. And again, I go back to the Verizon comment. I've worked with Verizon. I've been through their assessments. I can, and it's the classic, I don't need them to describe a duck to me. I know I can look at all the things about a duck and determine it's a duck. But my board of directors doesn't want to hear from me. They don't want to say, well, Daryl says this, so that's enough to your point. It needs to have that third party outside subject matter expert validation that you're either way behind, but you're doing everything you're possible to get caught up, or, hey, you know what? We just did an assessment, and you're reasonably ready. Remember, I used the word reasonable. I didn't say perfect. There's absolutely no perfect security. But that's the way you build the confidence in the board, that you're able to pull in people that they can validate or have been validated by the industry already, and they go, okay, so these are the right people they say we're doing the right thing, or they said we weren't doing the right thing, but now we are, that's how you build credibility with your board and your leadership. Yeah. And you've mentioned a lot about post-breach CISOs focus on people and process. Couldn't agree more. That's the hard stuff. That's what instills good strategy and processes. And again, couldn't agree with that more. But let's not forget right. about technology in some aspect because even post-breach CISOs still need to leverage technology to their advantage, whether because just automation to get through the amount of data needs to be done because we don't have people to do all of it, right? Whether it's just simple monitoring right. Right. or maybe it's technology out there to help with the reporting, help with the context and the, the visualizations or the understanding of what are the actual critical risks to think about and let me automate part of that process so that I'm spending my time strategizing on the business decision and not trying to just gather all the inputs from all of my different tools out there that I know I have to have, but that obviously isn't the important crux of your defensibility to the board. So where does technology oh, fit? Where does yeah. technology fit into this? And do you see no plugs or anything like that, unless you you have them out there? But <laughs> what technologies do you see out there, or are you looking for if they don't exist that can help you even as a post breach CISO? Oh, great question. And if my, if it came across that I said technology is not important, that is factually inaccurate on my part, and I apologize. No, I think I used the words technology takes care of itself. But yes, no, no worries. Beyond there. all that, yep. No, you, so it doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're Aries Management or GE Capital or Northrop Grumman or even Kraft Foods. There is going to be an expected level expected service catalog of technical services that you are providing to or using to manage your program, SIMS, IDS, EDR, EPP, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And ticking and tying back to risk, remember we started with that. So I'll use as a real life example, not here, but a previous life, which was We don't know where our data is. We don't know who has it. We don't know what they're doing with it. We need a DLP solution to find out where to do the discovery, but then to find out how the data is flowing, right? Where is it moving around? 
Well, it's a risk. Remember, I tied it back to a business risk, and that ended up with an element of the solution is always going to be technology, period. So there's a couple of elements here that I can speak to with a moderate level of confidence. You can buy technology. Everybody can get technology from their board any day of the week. And I, again, I stole this from somebody else and don't know who it is, but the language was nobody wants to be the executive to say no to cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah, wow. That shows you how important this, and this number one challenge is for every company out there. Right. Nobody, I mean, I can, I don't play that card, but if I walked in with my hair on fire and said, I need something that has seven digits in it, I will get a conversation. (laughs) And let me say it like this, an unbudgeted, an unbudgeted seven digits. So from that perspective, technology is important, but you've got to wrap it in a business risk. So a real life example, again, I just talked about DLP. I talked about EDR. I talked about EPP. I've talked about threat hunt. I mean, I haven't talked about threat hunting, but you have threat hunting and all those things. And talked about a SIM. If you don't have somebody running the SIM, the SIM is now a liability. Because if you have a breach and they come back and say, hey, and you've heard this line just like I have, they found in the logs that this started 18 months ago. They used your own technology to fire you. (laughs) So technology is important, but you've got to wrap it into a business reason. And the people, you mentioned the people, oh my goodness, that's, and the technologies are getting so complex now. You've done this as well as I probably, where you've sat through all these vendor demos and they're like, look how easy it is. You just do this and you do that. And then you get all this great stuff. Okay. But who's watching the wheel? Yeah. Who's watching the wheel, right? And who's keeping everything up to date? So that's why you see this growing movement in the industry to MSSPs and MSPs. If we're going to go down the EDR route, I'm not going to buy five endpoint security professionals. A, even if I had the headcount, which I could get, I can't find them because everybody's looking for them, right? Then when I hire them, when I hire somebody who's a junior or has got an interest in it, I train them and they get certified, they're going to leave me for a 35 or 40% pay increase somewhere, and I get stuck with it again. So your technology is important. But the use of that technology, i.e. the people and process, that's just as important. And it's some sort of ticketing tool. And I don't care if you're, I mean, I don't care about PagerDuty or Ops Genie and integrations with ServiceNow or BMC or whatever. That becomes the backbone of your cybersecurity program is the processes inlaid in those tools to manage and or effectively use the information coming out of your technologies. Yep, totally. So then how do we, I just couldn't agree more, right? I mean, I think that is the number one problem that we see, right? I mean, I think the other stat out there too is that there's, what, three times as many cyber job openings as there are qualified people to fill them. And maybe that's gone down, but I can only imagine it's go up just because of the amount of configuration or monitoring needs that are out there. I can't see it going down. Yeah. I mean, I did for a preparation for another meeting. I went on the Indeed and typed in the word pen tester. Just Indeed. That's all I did. Pen tester. Thirty-seven open, thirty-seven hundred open positions in the U.S. When I opened it up to the world, it went over ten thousand. And you could be a pen tester from anywhere on the planet. So if you think about it, there's ten thousand open pen tester roles right now. I can't hire one. 
Yeah, it's kind of crazy, man. It really is. I guess not that it's probably a whole separate podcast then, but that just gets into how do we help the education and the awareness of this space and get talent either into the field or make best use of the talent that we already have within our company to understand some security policies, procedures, Mm -hmm. configurations that says, look, we are all, and as as an employee of whatever company you work for, we all ambassadors as well as also a threat to the company as it relates to cyber. And we sure. need to take ownership of that and we need to understand our role in protecting the company just as much as we're trying to advance the progress or the growth of the company, which sometimes may mean avoiding certain controls or defenses that the security guy put in place because you want to move a little faster than what IT or, or your CISO said to, right? Right. Again, that is my tangent for this podcast because that could be a whole a whole another thing in itself is, is the education of employees and, and just in general to get talent back in here but well let's try to land this plane a little bit as well as i know we're getting a little, a little late into this so obviously i think it's it's a redundant question or an assumptive question to say would you hire a CISO if you're a ceo or, or anyone sort of at the executive level looking to bring on board a chief information security officer you'd want to look for someone with breach experience Right, I think you'd say that's a more, in terms of qualification, maybe not mandatory, but something that's obviously definitely preferred. As the more we've talked about it, yeah. Well, to your point, it takes a company to be. It takes a company that has been through a breach to know that they need somebody who's been through a breach. And there's so let's talk about that for a second. We already talked about how companies are hiring CISOs left and right because they have to. Right, there is a dire need for someone to govern the risk around cyber in virtually any company around the world. I mean, when I say any company, I mean, really mean five people to 500,000. They need somebody who can do this for them. And the pool is, there's a lot of feet in the pool. <laughs> there are a lot of people trying to get, trying to get at this talent. So they make decisions that are not wrong. I'm going to make sure I say this. I'm not in any way saying that any decision to put somebody ahead of cyber is a wrong decision. But they make decisions, okay, we're going to pull from legal. We're going to pull from compliance. We're going to pull from risk, right? Which is great. You're bringing in a whole new set of talent into the cyber industry. If the company's never been through a breach, their first response will be those are absolutely fine answers. And I'm not here to say that those answers are always wrong. I have counterparts that are that came from legal and came from compliance, it came from risk, didn't know anything about cybersecurity and taught themselves over the course of two to three years. And they're fantastic leaders and they run great programs, but they weren't fantastic cyber leaders and they weren't running fantastic programs when they started. It took that two years of runway or two years of luck, whatever term you want to say, where they didn't have a breach for these people to grow into the role. That's fine. When you look at, you use Experian, you look at Panera, and then you look at Citrix, you know, you, you just go down the list, right? Their new CISOs, they, their questions have breach experience in their job descriptions now because they know they need somebody who's done it, somebody who's been through it. They're not going to go say, we're going to get our chief compliance officer and give them a CISO title because that's good enough, not after a breach. They start looking for talent that have been through it. Closing tips out there for anybody that is, let's just say, a pre-breach CISO, are there any steps without saying, hey, 
I've been doing it for 10 years. I haven't had a breach yet, so I must be doing the right things. When clearly I think we've been, Oh, I didn't say that. No, I know. I'm saying <laughs> as, as advice, as advice to people that make, because that is still folks that I talk to still kind of have that mentality from time to time. There's less of them out there, but there, there's still some out there that says, you know what? Well, I haven't been breached in seven years or in my time here. Why would it be any different? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and then they're going to give me what I need to get. What kind of advice would you give to some of those, what I would call more the pre-breach mentality type of people knowing that, hey, sort of not that doomsday is coming, but that no. time is coming and there's still some good practices or policies that you can implement around your, your processes that can enable you to still be a better CISO or what you've learned as a poach breach CISO in this example and apply that now without having this massive breach hit you to have to learn from and have to go get another job. Sure. So my best advice in that case is I'm going to make an assumptive statement that those folks who talk about they've never been through it and it works fine, they have one or two trusted partners, VARs, whoever that helps them with their program. And that's fine. And you know, they come in, they handle their pen test, they handle their audits, they hand, they do some of their monitoring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Help them with, you know, do the annual evaluation of their policies, et cetera. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if you want to feel better and or you want to be able to stand in front of your board and say that we're we really are, change your partners, at least for a cycle. Go find go find a risk specific organization to come in and really do an assessment. Instead of paying your VAR to do a pen test, have them do a risk assessment. Find an incident response partner who focuses on IR and have them do an assessment versus having them look at your policies, right? Use the money a little differently. And you may start seeing your eyes turn wide open, your face turn white, your eyes open, because it comes down to subject matter expert in an area of expertise to really be able to go an inch wide and a mile deep versus a mile wide and an inch deep across everything, right? So that's my advice. I've been giving that advice forever. And it, it sounds trite, but every law firm that I know that focuses on privacy and on incident response, their assessments are loss leaders. And, and same with IR, same with risk. Many of the risk, their assessments are usually loss leaders for them. So they're, what is that important? Because they're economical, right? So you sit down and say, okay, I'm going to spend for, you know, I was going to spend $80,000 or $40,000 on a pen test. I'm going to change this up and I'm going to bring in, I'm going to bring in whoever, and I'm going to have them do a proper risk assessment for the same dollars and be shocked on what the findings will be. New set of eyes. And that is the advice I've given people numerous, numerous times. Change your vendors. You may be surprised what you learn. I like that. So basically, if I could maybe simplify it, it'd be check the ego at the door and either validate your awesomeness or learn how to be more awesome. Bring somebody in to tell you how great you are. Or maybe that's what you've been doing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Daryl, I mean, this, that's been uh, tremendous insights. I thank you so much for joining us and for sharing all that wisdom. Obviously, look forward to continue to follow you individually and obviously what you're doing there at Aries and obviously appreciate what you're doing for the industry and, and the thought leadership you're bringing to the table. So hopefully our listeners feel the same way. They can find you on different social profiles or mediums and just look forward to continue the conversation. So thanks again for joining us today, Daryl. Appreciate it. 
Again, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 